speaking to you this morning about patriotism and about the book of Jonah. As you could tell from my prayer, that's where my thoughts have been, obviously, these last days, but actually these last weeks. I love my country. I feel fierce loyalty to our troops. And that love and loyalty uh, has been deeply rooted in the connection that Betsy and I have with the group that I've told you about many times, the Officers Christian Fellowship. Most of you know that Betsy and I recently returned from uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania, where there is a retreat center for the OCF. Uh, Bedford is uh, relatively easy access uh, for those who come to the retreat center to receive Bible teaching for a week. Uh, and they run these programs through the summer. It's easy access for the, the uh, academies, not the Air Force Academy, but for, the, uh, for West Point, for Annapolis, for the Coast Guard Academy. Easy access uh, for the, from the War College in Carlisle, which is one hour away. And easy access from the Pentagon, just a, just a few hours drive from all those places. And um, so all, all the, the career military gather who are believers, and, and, and we spend time together. Uh, in God's Word, I, I spoke eight times that week, and uh, uh, I, and it's all branches of the military. And I, I wanted to mention something. There's a young Marine named James that Betsy and I befriended a few years ago. We've been praying for him with some decisions he was making, and he was passing through. And I got to spend some time with James, and I told you about him before. You remember the story of of um, the uh, young man who, uh, the young Marine who rides a bus two hours every morning to get to the place where he works and then rides the bus two hours home because the place where he works is the White House. He's the pilot of Marine One, but he can't afford to live anywhere close. <laughs> so that's how he gets to work. And, and that, that was James, and he's one of, those, one of the Marine One pilots. He's still living in D.C., still flying, uh, but now he's planning to go to seminary. Uh, so it was great to catch up with him. But one of the things that characterized this year while we were there is there was a lot of brokenness. Um, one couple that Betsy and I spent a good bit of time with was very wounded. Between them, they had had, I think, three marriages. And um, she was, uh, she was, and they had, a, they had a pretty rough history. She was an officer, nurse, um, and she had left the, the military to go to medical school. She was accepted at three medical schools. She, she was uh, getting ready to go. Uh, I'll back up just a moment. Even though she was a nurse, she had to go through combat training uh, for where she was stationed. I, I guess that's a routine. And um, uh, in one combat session, a routine punch resulted in uh, her having to have her ovaries removed. Uh, these people sacrifice a lot. It was just a routine thing. Um, at any rate, she, her husband, she married an enlisted man. He's a master sergeant, um, retired, who was wounded. And instead of medical school, she uh, ended up taking care of him. And he had complex problems. He told me that he was sent in to do things no one else wanted to do. And I did not ask him what he meant by that. But because of those things, he suffered from severe PTSD. 
And the thing is, through, during that time there, through the teaching of God's word, and through the, especially through the fellowship of people coming around him, he found hope in his, in his identity in Jesus Christ. And he left there a changed man, and, and may God allow that change to continue. We love these people. And we thank the elders for granting us preparation time and travel time to minister to them. It's been 34 years now that, uh, that we, we've been privileged to do this. And by the way, these people hate war. They hate it. Uh, they just believe a strong military is how to avoid it. And, and you, you would love them, and they would love you. A number of them over the years have passed through here and visited us here at the church. Well, as Christians, we're to be good patriots. We are to love our country. And I am an unrepentant conservative. Uh, the truth of the matter is, though, we have a higher allegiance. As Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. And elsewhere, he said, we are ambassadors for Christ here on earth. So we serve the king of kings. Not the king, we serve the king of kings. And we represent him, we're to act on his behalf. And when we're forced to choose between any earthly allegiance and the allegiance to our king, King Jesus wins every time. As Peter said to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men, right? That's our priority, right? We must obey God rather than men. Good citizens, good patriots, but our allegiance is to the king of kings. Now, usually because of our freedoms, we are not forced to choose between our land and our Lord. Usually that's not a problem for us. But the Old Testament prophet Jonah did face that choice, or at least he thought he did. When God told Jonah to go to the country of his enemies, he flatly refused. His allegiance to his country was greater than his allegiance to God. Or, or let me put it differently. Jonah hated the enemies of his country more than he loved God. When you look at it that way, this is a pretty serious book. The book of Jonah is not about geopolitics. It's about whether or not God's word is to be obeyed. Now today, I want us to look at the first half of Jonah's story, which takes place mostly in the Mediterranean Sea, if, as, you, as we just read. The second half of the book takes place in the city of Nineveh and around the city of Nineveh. So those, those are the two locations. And the story of this book is the subject of our vacation Bible school this week in the Go, Go, Jonah musical. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first half of the book today. Kids are going to be taught it this week. You can look at the second half of the book next Sunday morning. And then next Sunday night, the children are going to have a program where they're going to share with us what they've learned about the book of Jonah during the week. So looking forward to that. But I want to make two observations before we dip into these chapters. Maybe I should say dip into the waters of these chapters. Yeah, there's a lot of water jokes that could, we could make over this. Okay. First of all, the first observation I want to make is this. The focus of this book is utterly unique. This book <clears throat> is about Jonah himself. It's not a prophecy per se. 
It's not like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and, and Micah that surround Jonah. This book is the story of Jonah himself. Of the 48 verses in this book, 38 of them are about the prophet and his character. 38. Now, when you read this book carefully, what you find is that everyone and everything in this book obeys God. The storm, the lots that are cast, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, kings, the plant, the worm, the east wind. Everyone, everything obeys God except Jonah. He is the only preacher that I'm aware of who didn't want to preach lest his audience actually respond. So in this story, the story really is about what happened to the prophet as well as what happened through him. Now, that's the first observation. The second observation is this. At the same time, this story clearly illustrates that God's grace is extended to everyone everywhere. Jonah is arguably the most missions-minded book in the Old Testament. No one, no one, no one is beyond God's reach when God intends to get his message to them. And I want you to drive down a stake here at chapter 2, verse 8, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. God wanted his message preached to those who hadn't heard, including the Assyrians. And next week I'll explain why. I believe God had an ulterior motive. But for right now, look at chapter 1, verse 2. What did God say? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, we learn actually from chapter 3 that there was a grace period of 40 days before the judgment would happen. And Jonah was just appalled because, I mean, he would have been quite happy to prophesy God's judgment about Nineveh. But to prophesy God's judgment to Nineveh 40 days from now meant that there was a remote possibility, no matter however unthinkable it might be, that they might repent and God might forgive them. Because he's like that. And that made Jonah frustrated. So, question. Why didn't Jonah just say, Oh, Lord, what a great idea. These people really do need to hear your message. They do need to be warned. Maybe they'll repent. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Why did he get it on a ship headed in the opposite direction? Because here, here's the background. Nineveh was the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. They were the most brutal people in all of the ancient Near East. They inflicted unspeakable tortures on their captives. Uh, there are graphic accounts of this in Assyrian records. I, I've said a lot of, of um, blunt things from this pulpit over the years because some scriptures are rated R. Uh, when, you, when you read through the book of Judges and some other books here and there. But I w- would never describe to you the things that the Assyrians did to their captives. Um, you can look up Assyrian cruelty or that's probably in two clicks. It'll get you there. They wrote about them in their records, which we have. 
they drew pictures of them on the walls, which have been excavated and, and we can see them. And rather than go through that, many people would kill themselves before they would let their Assyrian captives get their hands on them. So, does that explain a little bit about the Assyrians? What they were like? be like asking the head of the Christian church in the Middle East to go to ISIS headquarters and give them the message of, of, of God's coming judgment. So, Jonah didn't agonize in prayer over this. He didn't discuss this with God. He skipped town. And instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, Jonah tried to go 2,000 miles to the west to Tarshish off the coast of Spain. He was headed to the edge of the Mediterranean world. I, I love Hebrews 4.13, which says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. <laughs> right? <laughs> there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jeremiah 23.34, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Well... Jonah was not only thinking of his hatred for the Assyrians. Jonah was known as a prophet. If you read 1 Kings chapter 14, Jonah was the prophet who spoke in behalf of God about the enlargement of Jeroboam's borders. What a wonderful message. I've got a reputation to uphold, Lord. I only give good news. And I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to go to the enemies of your people. It's, it's an astonishing response. So Jonah runs away. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder if he wasn't trying to get away from God as much, which he couldn't, as he was trying to get away from Nineveh, uh, which he could. If I'm, if I'm physically too far away from Nineveh, then God will have to use someone else. I wonder if that's also a part of his thinking here. But he certainly does not want to be in God's presence because Jonah knew better than God or at least he thought he did the Ninevites were so bad that they didn't deserve grace wait a minute who deserves grace none of us deserve grace no one does so do we make the judgment that some other person is not worthy of grace? Did God give us that job? No. Well, for the rest of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 2, God took Jonah to Nineveh by means of an unusual detour. And you know what happened. Jonah sailed in the opposite direction. It wasn't exactly a three-hour tour. Um, but, you know, the... I thought about this also, that the trailblazers are going on the river tomorrow night. Uh, should we commission them? What Are they going to... I don't know. I've had all kinds of thoughts about this, Roger. Should we... Well, anyway, if, um, if some of you want to see them off, you can meet them down there. So, at any, <laughs> as they're on the, on the Tennessee River tomorrow night. Well, we read in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm. Then the ship was about to break apart. This is the kind of storm that terrifies seasoned sailors 
Verse 5, the sailors became afraid. And everybody was calling upon the God of their choice. Verses 5 and 6. Everybody, that is, except Jonah. And the captain came to Jonah and begged him to pray too. And the sailors were learning that their gods were fairly impotent. Uh, And I want you to understand a little bit about pagan theology in these days, in these ancient days. Pagan theology put geographical boundaries on their gods. So it was kind of like this. The further that you went away from the land where that God manifest, where that God was worshipped, the less power there was for that God because the God was geographically bound. It's kind of like losing signal on a cell phone, you know. So. But. Here's the thing. The sailors cast lots to see if one of them was to blame or somebody on the ship was to blame in verse seven. And God was orchestrating that the lot fell on Jonah. So they demanded of Jonah, you know, what's going on here? Why is this happening? What did you do? Is it because of one of us? Do you know the answer? Where are you from? Who do you serve? Who is your God? And, you know, despite Jonah's rebellion, his theology was good. Look at verse nine. You need to see this. Chapter one, verse nine. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven. Listen, (laughs) who made the sea and the dry land. That's pretty much the two categories of the earth. So, you know, his theology is absolutely right. He's not. The true God is not bound. By location, by cell phone signal. It's ironic that that Jonah sailed away to avoid preaching to the pagan Gentiles. And and here he is kind of like the ship's captain, uh, ship's chaplain, rather preaching to the pagan Gentiles. Thankfully, even though Jonah may have wanted to resign as God's prophet, he does not deny God. And he told them to pick him up, throw him into the sea, and they would be spared. And by the way, here, Jonah, as God's prophet, spoke that which was exactly, precisely true. That is what happened. Question, why didn't Jonah throw himself into the sea? In the adventure movie, Master and Commander, the ship encounters misfortune after misfortune, and the, true be- the crew begins a whispering campaign that one of the midshipmen is bringing bad luck to the ship. And after weeks of being shunned, because he's identified as a Jonah, after weeks of being shunned, this young man puts on his full uniform, goes up to the ship, uh, up to the railing, gets a cannonball, holds it close to himself, and jumps into the ocean. And you've got this horrific picture as he goes down and down and down and then um, the next day the wind picks up and their luck changes for the good why doesn't the real Jonah do that because there's no such thing as good luck or bad luck this is in the hands of the Lord it's God's judgment one more comment about the sailors because chapter one mentions three times the word fear in relationship to the sailors In verse 5, they feared the horrific storm. In verse 10, they were afraid when they learned about Jonah's God. In verse 16, they feared the Lord after the storm stopped. Why? The word fear. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure these pagan sailors had heard of Jonah's God because they traveled from port to port in the Mediterranean world. 
They would have heard about the plagues in Egypt, about the parting of the waters, about the manna, and on and on and on, the various victories. None of this took place. None of the, none of the great victories <laughs> took place in the land of Israel. They all took place outside the land of Israel. The plagues, the manna, all that took place outside the land of Israel. Because this is a God who's not confined by cell phone towers. This is a God who's not confined by, by uh, geography, by borders. And, and to them, it's inconceivable that you try to outrun such a God when they hear about this. How could you do this? Look at verse 10. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. How could you do this? This is a rebuke to him. But at the same time, they wanted to protect him. Do you see the contrast here? They want to protect. They tried everything that they could. They, they had already jettisoned everything that they owned, not just the cargo that they owned. They tried rowing, and then they tried rowing hard, and then they tried rowing harder. <laughs> they did everything that they could to spare Jonah's life, not to ha- do what he, had to, what he said about throwing him in. These men had, these men had more concern for one life than Jonah had for over half a million people in Nineveh. They exhausted every possibility before they cast Jonah into the sea. The contrast is amazing. And, and this is controversial, so I'm going to just tell you, this is it's my belief. I think it's probable that these men were saved. I know they were saved physically, but I believe they were saved spiritually as well. Their souls were saved, that they believed in the one true God. Because in verse 16, how do they worship? With sacrifice, the Jewish way of approaching God and vows. And in chapter 2, Jonah talks about his own sacrifice and his own vows. Same things. And then he says salvation is from the Lord. It's all tied together. So I believe that they did worship come to worship the one true God. Someone might say, yeah, maybe they believed, but it was a foxhole conversion. Well, that's not what happened here. Their sacrifice and vows took place in verse 16 after the danger was over and they were safe. Besides, I'll take a foxhole conversion any day if it's a foxhole conversion. So, and by the way, if if these pagan sailors were indeed converted to the one true God. Jonah was not there to see it. But his story is not over. What did Jonah expect to happen? As far as Jonah knew, he was thrown into the Mediterranean as a dead man. He would drown. But that was. But that was not God's plan for his prodigal prophet. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And next week I'll talk to you about that critter and what I think it was. But as far as Jonah knew, when he was thrown into the ocean, he was a dead man. Speculation. This is my speculation. Okay? It's not from the text. But imagine if you were Jonah. You were in the ocean. You're beginning to swallow water. There's this dark form coming towards you. Not a happy moment. And suddenly, everything goes black. There's still a sense of motion 
maybe even a birth-like experience of being forced by the creature's esophagus and organs down into its stomach where there's an air pocket. And that being crushed through that, kind of like artificial respiration, forcing water out of your lungs, I don't know, possibly. But when you regain consciousness, imagine the initial horror, the darkness. Imagine the darkness. Imagine the stench. Because if there's air to breathe, there's stench of what's inside. So imagine that foul smell. Maybe acidic stomach juices are doing a number on your skin. But, it, but the darkness is the thing. The darkness. Jonah had three days to ponder God's command to him. Just as Saul of Tarsus had three days of blindness to reflect on Jesus' appearance to him. Sometimes we're so obsessed with the fish that we miss the drama of what's going on inside the fish. While Jonah was in the fish, and by the way, the Hebrew text does not use the word whale. Um, Well, next week. While Jonah was in the fish, his mind turns to the Psalms and he prays the word words of the book of Psalms back to the Lord. And it's at the end of that that he concludes in chapter two, verse nine. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice two main points here in chapter two. First of all, Jonah admits God's sovereignty. Look in verse verse three. He says, you're the one who hurled me. You had cast me into the deep, into the deep and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Yeah, the the sailors did it, sure. But at this point, Jonah's done with secondary causes. Ultimately, it's God's sovereign will that this has happened to him. And he admits God's sovereignty over his life and that maybe God knows better. Second point I want you to notice is not only that he admits God's sovereignty, he submits to God's plan in verses 4 through 9. Listen as the prayer of Jonah echoes some of the words of the Psalms. Jonah, uh, Psalm 42, verse 7. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications. Jonah 2, 2. You heard my voice. Psalm 42, 7 again. Deep calls to deep. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. Jonah 2, 3, you cast me into the deep. All your breakers and waves pass over me. Psalm 31, 22, as for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Jonah 2, 4, I have been expelled from thy sight. Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2, 9, what does it say? Salvation is of the Lord. Listen especially to Psalm 18. Verses four through six, just listen to these words. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Do you hear the echoes of Jonah there? Do you hear the echoes of Jonah chapter two? But there's a problem. Here's the problem. Jonah's prayer is like a psalm. Yes. But it's far more Jonah-centered than it is God-centered. One scholar described Jonah's prayer like a one-inch snowfall covering a garbage dump. It looks beautiful until you begin to stir it. In other words, what's missing from his psalm is confession 
repentance. God's glory. And the pattern throughout the book of Psalms is to move from my problems, never to stop there, but to move on into God's glory. Jonah's confession is genuine, but barely, barely. So at the end of Jonah's prayer, he does acknowledge salvation is from the Lord. God has a right to save anyone and everyone. We are not judges of who receives grace. Okay, well, that's two chapters. They're not real hard. Chapter one, Jonah says, no way. Chapter two, Jonah says, okay. That's it. And, but he says, it, you know, like Eeyore. Okay, I'll go. Salvation is of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10, Jonah disembarks, sort of. I've, I've never done this, but for years I've wanted to preach through Jonah and, and entitle this chapter with apologies to Charles Dickens. Great expectorations. <laughs> I've always resisted that. Okay, so what do we what do we learn? What do we take home from these two chapters? I'm going to make a couple of summary comments. First of all, what do we learn about ourselves from these chapters? When we reject God's will, because it's not our will, that's not only disobedience; that's actually stupid. Okay, when we reject God's will because it's not our will. That's really ultimately never in our own best self, self-interest. Things just work better when we follow God's will. God says, obey me. And what do we do? Well, we may not be as blatant as Jonah in our disobedience and head in the other direction. What we might do is look at God's commands that we're to obey and say, oh, what wonderful commands. We love these commands. We sing songs to these commands. We come to church and study these commands in great detail. And then we close in prayer and we go home feeling contented, fulfilled, and maybe even even euphoric. Great commands. And God says, what are you doing? I called you not merely to be hearers of my word, but doers of my word. Why do you not obey me? Because ultimately, at the, at the razor edge of our disobedience, when we're making the choice, we're saying to ourselves, there's no real consequences for this. We're saying to ourselves, God's not going to hold this as a sin. It's not a big sin anyway. We're saying to ourselves, we know better than God. Not obeying. We're saying to ourselves that not obeying brings no consequences. Or that reluctant obedience somehow pleases him. Does reluctant obedience please God? This is just not logical. Um, Kenneth Boa, who's a friend of our church, asked this question. And I want to ask it of you, and I'm, I'm going to give you my answer. 
How many of you have ever regretted acts of disobedience to God? Let me see your hands. This is the wake-up time in the sermon. How many of you have ever regretted acts of disobedience to God? Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. You disobey God and you wish now, if you had it to do over again, I so wish I had obeyed him. Okay. How many of you have ever regretted acts of obedience to God so that you obeyed God and now you wish you hadn't? If you had it to do all over, over again, you'd disobey him. Anybody feel that way? No hands. Okay. Every one of us regrets acts of disobedience to God. Every one of us never regrets acts of obedience to God. Disobedience is not logical, is it? But it's willful. Do you see yourselves in the mirror of the book of Jonah? I see myself right here, right in the middle of it. Second closing question. What do we learn about God in these chapters? That's what we learn about ourselves, I think. We see ourselves. What do we learn about God in these chapters? Well, first of all, God is God. He is the creator. He's sovereign. He made everyone and everything, including Jonah, the Ninevites, the storms, the fish. And he's very, very creative. Once again, this time for Jonah's sake, the spirit of God moves over the surface of the waters. He is the creator. He is God. He is sovereign. Second, he is patient and long-suffering, both with believers and non-believers. He didn't squash Jonah. He didn't drown the sailors. And he didn't destroy the Ninevites. Instead, he taught Jonah. He spared and I believe saved the sailors. And he warned the Ninevites. And later forgave them. I am so glad he is patient and long-suffering with me. Third, God is involved. He will bring his plans to completion. I'm so glad that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is long-suffering with me. He is involved in my life and in yours. And even when Jonah felt so put upon, so oppressed by God's commands, even then, God was protecting him. That's what God does. That's what he's like. And as we move towards this table, this last thought, God is forgiving. God is forgiving. The sailors sacrifice to God. Jonah says in chapter 2, verse 9, that he's going to offer sacrifices to God. We approach God through sacrifice. Substitution. The lamb would be slain in our place so that the guilt would be placed on that which was innocent and unblemished, so that we might receive imputed righteousness and be forgiven of our sins. So that when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because he who knew no sin became sin for you. So that you might become the righteousness of God in him. That's just good news. And he asked us. He has asked us. Until he comes. To remember him. To remember the sacrifice. And to keep him foremost. In our minds and in our hearts. The way that we, were do, that we do this. Most tangibly. 
is by celebrating the Lord's table. This is not the table of Sigma Mountain Bible Church. This is the Lord's table. So if you belong to the Lord, we would invite you to partake of these elements with us. If you uh, have been saved through faith in Jesus,